0: If you have your Bibles open up to Romans chapter 2 once again, wouldn't it be good if we leave this place today knowing for certain that God had spoken to us, the creator of all, the creator of the universe? whether it had been through something in the music or through the word or something I said or something somebody else said, to say, man, I know that God spoke directly to me today. I mean, is that what we want? Maybe. (laughs) Depends on what he says. Is that what some of you are thinking? (laughs) Could be. Whatever he says is going to be good. Today we continue with part five in our series in Romans, and we're going to get right into this, right off the bat. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, so we'll be starting in verse 12. So if you would stand with me this morning as we receive the word of the Lord. Romans two twelve, Paul writes, "...for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified." For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I do want... For you to speak to us this morning, Lord. God, if your presence is not here, if you're not the one speaking, God, then I'm just up here giving an empty speech and nobody leaves here changed. We don't want that. God, we want you to speak. We want your power, your spirit to be moving and working among us and in us. So, Lord, would you open our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, and our hearts to receive what you want to do inside of every one of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen to this. Anybody know what you just heard. Some of you history buffs, maybe. What you heard was the bugle call given by the Mexican army at the Alamo called El Degueyo, which means something along the lines of "slip throat. It was the announcement to the enemy that no quarter would be given. No life would be spared, not even to those who would surrender. And that's exactly what happened. The only survivors of the Alamo were the women and children who sought refuge in the fort and some of the servants. But all of the men, those who didn't die in the battle, were taken prisoner and immediately executed. No quarter was a tactic that some armies used to try to intimidate and instill fear into the people they were trying to conquer. After any battle was over, there would be some leftovers Some men who were fighting and and at the end of it all, after the army had won, they come in there and they would find some still there who hadn't been killed, who either had been hiding from the fight or they were surrendering or had been wounded. And if no quarter had been given, all those remaining would be slaughtered. Now, that was actually a tactic that was outlawed in 1917 At the meeting of the nations at The Hague, and it is now considered a war crime, but for a time, no quarter was a tactic used by some armies. Now, from the last half of Romans 2 to the first half of Romans 3 is what I call Paul's no quarter section of this letter. Since we started in chapter 1 for the last four weeks, we've been looking at how Paul has been explaining who all is guilty before God and why. And I'll call this part here today the no quarter portion because Paul isn't letting anyone off the hook. Just in case there's any leftovers that are, after everything that he has said so far, any leftovers who who think that they are off the hook, that they're good with God while everybody else is doomed, Paul assures us here that we aren't. There's basically three parts to the rest of chapter two here that we're going to look at this morning. We just read the first part. And in this, Paul is saying that there are basically two kinds of people in the world, those who have the law and those who don't have God's law. The law, of course, is what God gave the Israelites through Moses that contained the Ten Commandments and all other rules and regulations pertaining to a life that that pleases God, a life that He accepts and that was recorded in the Old Testament books of Exodus and Leviticus. The law is God's standard. This is what He requires in order to be able to stand right before Him in order to be accepted by him. Now, the Israelites assumed that since they were the only ones who had God's law, that they were the only ones who God would accept. I mean, it kind of makes sense. If we had been the ones who, the only ones who received God's law, we'd have probably assumed the same thing. Because, I mean, if someone doesn't know the law, how are they going to know what the standard is? How are they going to know how to live right if they don't have the law. But in the text that we just read, Paul is saying it's not about who has the law and who doesn't. He's saying it's not a matter of just knowing what the standard is. It's about actually meeting the standard. And those who know what God's standard is but don't meet it are just as guilty as those who don't even know what the standard is at all some might think that it seems kind of unfair for God to let one race of people know what the standard is and not let everybody else knows. But the truth is, no one needs to see God's law written on stone tablets or in a scroll to know the difference between right and wrong. God has instinctively wired every one of us with what's right? I mean, if you go to any culture in the world, you will see examples of God's moral law. I mean, every culture knows that it's wrong to murder someone. Everybody knows that it's wrong to steal something that is not yours and that there are going to be consequences for doing these things. So how can these other cultures have these same rules in place even though they have never had God's law? It's because God has given us the instinctive knowledge... Of Right and wrong and so here Paul is taking first no quarter with those who might think that they're going to escape God's judgment because they didn't know that's not going to fly I mean you can't murder someone and go well I didn't know it was wrong and expect to be let off the hook ignorance is no excuse so for anyone who might think well I didn't know Paul's going nope no quarter with you you're doomed too. He's also calling no quarter on something I mentioned last week. Any Jew who might think that they are off the hook just because they are part of the people who had God's law. Paul says it's not a matter of just having it and knowing it. It's a matter of doing it. There is a problem with mankind. We all stand guilty before God because of our wicked hearts. And so here Paul is saying this, which is the first point in your notes there. Just knowing isn't the answer. And this applies a lot today because there are many people who think that they're in just because they know all the right answers. Maybe some of you here today, you've been raised in church, and so you know you're a sinner. You know that Jesus is the answer, and so you assume that you're saved. But there's no evidence of that anywhere in your life. There's no affection for Christ, no desire to obey him whatsoever. You may feel some emotion when a song that you like is sung during worship, but that's about as far as it goes. And when you leave here, your life looks no different than the rest of the world. Just knowing isn't enough. It's about a complete transformation of the heart that affects every aspect of life. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Okay, well, somebody might read that and go, well, I don't just know it, I do it. I try to live up to it, and I even teach others about it, too. Paul's about to take no quarter with them next. Starting in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Now Paul here is doing pretty much the same thing that Jesus did at one part of his Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at that for just a minute, because this is important. In Matthew 5, Jesus is given this long discourse, and I'm going to point out a couple verses here. Starting in verse 21, he said, You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, in his heart, has committed adultery with her. Now... The weight of what Jesus is saying is not, you better not call somebody a fool, and you better not look at someone in lust. I mean, that's what most sermons that preach out of this text make it all about, saying you better not do this and you better not do that. But that is not Jesus' main point at all. Yes, we shouldn't do those things, just don't mistake me on that, but that's not... The point of Jesus' message. He was not giving people advice on how to live better and try harder. He was showing them that there is no way to make ourselves better simply by trying to obey the law. I mean, think about it. These were Jewish people that Jesus was saying this to. People who had lived their entire lives centered around trying to obey the law. And I'm sure one of them would have heard this, or all of them would have heard it, and probably thought, wait a minute. I've lived according to the law my whole life, and I've done a pretty good job of it up to this point. I've never killed anyone or even come close to it. Now, you're telling me that if I just call somebody a fool, I'm guilty of murder? I've been faithful to my spouse our whole marriage. And now you're telling me that I just look at somebody and lust and I'm guilty of committing adultery? There's no way. That is impossible. No one is able to live up to that standard. And Jesus would have replied, exactly. Now you see why you need me. You can't live up to it. You need someone to do it for you. Jesus was burying these people under the law to show how impossible it is to obey it. He was showing them their need for a savior. And Paul is doing the same thing here with this section that we just read in Romans 2. It's not enough for you to simply know it and try to live by it. It's not enough that you would even teach others about it. It's impossible for you to meet it. And if you can't meet it, you're doomed. Those who think that they're getting in on good behavior and obedience, no quarter with you either. Next point. We all have a wicked heart, but good behavior isn't the answer. Good behavior is not going to fix a wicked heart. Now, listen. If you are truly saved, your behavior is going to reflect that. But good behavior by itself is not what saves you Paul's not done yet let's look at this next part now Paul is going to talk about circumcision um, which I know is a a bit awkward in mixed company but I'm going to address it because it is so important in light of how it relates to the gospel Um, I'll be as delicate with it as I can but circumcision was, of course, the physical identifying mark of God's people. It was the visible sign of those who belonged to God. And so there were many Jews who assumed that that was enough for them to be able to stand right before God and be accepted by him, even if they weren't able to obey all of the law. If they had that identifying mark, then they were in. So in order to get what Paul is going to be saying here, whenever you see the word circumcision, think of it as the sign of those who belong to God because that's essentially what it was. Verse 25, for indeed circumcision is a value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So right off the bat, Paul is saying to those who think they're good, just because they have that identifying mark, no quarter for you either. Not going to make it. That's not what it's about. Let's read on. Verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So... Someone not physically marked but is living up to God's standard belongs to God more so than someone who is physically marked but is not living up to his standard. The problem is that no one is able to meet God's standard on their own. No one is able to be good enough or obedient enough and so Paul is taking no quarter with everyone here. Now this next part that Paul says, the next verses we're going to read, are absolutely huge. And I don't know why more isn't taught on what Paul says here. Um, because the ramifications of them are incredible. And I guess it's probably because people are afraid of being called racist or anti-Semite if they do mention them. And Before we read them, though, I want to tell you about something that's going on in the church at large right now. Something that you will hear about if you haven't already. Because of the events that are going on in our world right now, a lot of end times talk has been ramping up again. And of course, whenever that happens, the nation of Israel is right in the middle of that discussion. And there is this big attack from people within the church on what they are incorrectly labeling as replacement theology. Now, what they call replacement theology is the belief that Israel and the Old Testament is a foreshadow of Jesus and the church today and they say that anyone who believes that believes that Christians today have replaced the Jews but replacement theology is a complete misnomer a more accurate term would be fulfillment theology Now I do adhere to fulfillment theology because I believe Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies, promises, types, and shadows. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of it. But some in the church attack this and call it racist and anti-Semite. And they believe that the Jews today, even those who still do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, are still God's chosen people and will be treated differently than everyone else. They believe that the Jews today, even those who reject the Messiah, have a special place with God that nobody else has. But I'm telling you right now, that is an extremely unbiblical and anti-gospel view. Galatians 2.21 says that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If the ability to be able to be accepted by God and be counted as his people comes through anything other than Jesus' sacrifice, then he died for nothing. In the garden, Jesus said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nowhere does it say God going, well, there actually is one other way. See, if you're born in this certain race, then then you're in. No, there was no other way. Jesus is the only way. And if what they are calling replacement theology is wrong, Paul wouldn't say what he does next. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. It couldn't be any clearer. It's the next point in your notes there. God considers his chosen people, Jews, not based on what they are on the outside, but by what he has done On the inside. And no one is being replaced. This is not about one group of people replacing another. This is how God has always viewed his people. They would be defined by the power of his transformation on the inside. Not by any physical marks or birth on the outside. And so, if you believe that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. If you are truly saved, guess what? You're a Jew. Somebody going, by God, I'm an American. I ain't no Jew. Just (laughs) calm down. This has nothing to do with race, origin, color, religion, or culture. This is not being a physical Jew, but a spiritual Jew. It's not about how you were born physically, but how you have been born spiritually. Jew in this sense still means the people God has chosen for himself to honor and represent him on earth. And we have learned so far in Romans that you can't accurately do that apart from salvation through Jesus. You have to have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to be able to honor and represent God the way that he deserves. There is no other way of doing that. And even in the Old Testament, the Jews were unable to be the people that God called and chose them to be. They didn't honor and represent him the way that he deserved. They failed, which was the whole purpose of the law to show that we are completely incapable of doing that on our own. That we need the power of God in our lives. We need a Savior. We'll be talking about this whole Israel thing more later because Paul gets into this in even greater depth in chapter 9. But I want to talk about verse 29 for a minute, where it says, Circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. Physical circumcision, of course, was the sign of God's covenant that he made with Abraham. And every male child from then on would undergo this as a sign that they were in covenant relationship with God. But have you ever wondered why on earth God would pick that to be a sign of his covenant? I mean, I've often wondered, God, why couldn't it have been just a tattoo or something? I mean, it's awkward, it's bloody, it's gory, it's intimate, it's a little creepy. Well, like everything in the Old Testament, it was a foreshadow of something better. Physical circumcision showed what the penalty for sin is. Sin is so dire and intimate and gross. Paul is saying here that ultimately it's not about the circumcision of the flesh. It's about the circumcision of the heart. Remember, Paul has been showing this time that the root problem with mankind is that we have wicked hearts. And right here is the first time in Romans that hints towards God being all about addressing the root problem. So far in this text, we've established that simply knowing what the answer is doesn't save you, and good behavior alone doesn't save you, but salvation does involve those two things at some level, right? I mean, you have to have the knowledge of the fact that you need saving, And knowledge of what it takes to be saved. And if you are truly saved, then your behavior is going to reflect that in a lot of ways. So how are these two things reconciled in authentic salvation? Well, they both come together perfectly in a circumcised heart. What does that mean exactly? Colossians 2.11 says that you are circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. On the cross, Jesus experienced the curse of the covenant. The curse of any covenant is to be cut off. I mean, think about that. If you've ever wronged someone, what happens? They cut you off. If you lie to someone, if you cheat, if you betray them, if you cross a line in that relationship that you shouldn't cross, you're going to be cut off from that relationship. Physical circumcision was the cutting off of a piece of flesh from the body. In the Garden of Eden, what was the result of Adam and Eve's disobedience? They were cut off. Cut off from relationship with God. Cut off from paradise as they were kicked out of the garden. Look what Genesis 3.24 says. be up on the screen. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In order to get... Screens are dead. In order to get to the tree of life, in order to get back in, you had to go under the sword. When Jesus hung on the cross naked for everyone to see, it was awkward. It was bloody. It was gory. And when he took our sin upon himself, he was cut off from the Father. Those who put their trust in him, we are brought back in and given access to the tree of life. Jesus did what it took to get back in by going under the sword. And those who put their faith in him are brought in with him. We receive his circumcision he took on the cross, but ours isn't one of the flesh, it's of the heart. The only place for the root problem of humanity, our wicked hearts to be fixed, is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now here's another reason I believe God chose circumcision. It was an act that couldn't be undone. I mean, once you went through circumcision, there was no way to go back to the way things were before. It was a permanent change. Same is true for an authentic circumcision of the heart. Tim Keller describes a circumcised heart like this. And it's the last thing in your notes there. says a circumcised heart is when what we ought to do and what we want to do are the same thing. John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn Amazing Grace, wrote other hymns. And in one of them, it has a line in it that describes this. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure, what we want to do, and our duty, what we ought to do, when we see the beauty of what Christ has done, are joined to part no more. They're the same thing. This is why Paul says it's possible for those who haven't even seen the law written anywhere to be able to live as though they have. And it's also the fulfillment of a prophecy in Jeremiah. And this is the last thing we're going to look at this morning. Jeremiah 31 is the prophecy of the new covenant. Starting in 33 it says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it And I will be their God And they shall be my people They will not teach again each man his neighbor And each man his brother saying know the Lord For they will all know me From the least of them to the greatest of them Declares the Lord For I will forgive their iniquity And their sin I will remember no more The first covenant included The circumcision of the flesh And trying to live according to the written law Which was all pointing to The new covenant we are now under, which includes the circumcision of the heart and the ability to live according to the Spirit. Earlier you heard the horn blast of the deguayo heard at the Alamo announcing that no quarter would be given. The Bible tells us that another horn blast is going to be heard it's going to be heard by everyone and it will announce the return of the king and the book of revelation says will come leading the armies of heaven he'll be riding a white horse and wearing a robe dipped in blood revelation 19:15 says that a sharp sword will come from his mouth That he may strike down the nations and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. When that trumpet blows, no quarter is going to be given to everyone who has defiled and dishonored his great name. The only refuge will be not for those who know what the answer is and not for those who behave right but for those whose hearts have been truly circumcised, transformed completely by his grace and mercy. The question is this morning, has yours, has your heart experienced that? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for being here with us right now. God, I could just sense your your presence, Lord, at work among us. And I pray for those right now whose secrets you are revealing. The conditions in their heart, God, that you're showing right now by your kindness. Lord, I pray right now by your spirit... By your grace and your mercy, you would reach in and touch those places in our heart that we can't touch. That you would heal the hurts that we can't heal. That you would mend the brokenness that we can't fix. Lord, I pray for those who you may be showing right now, God, that they've been relying on their effort and their good intention and their knowledge. Lord, by your kindness, you are jerking that out from under them to show that that's not what it's about. That you want to do something in their heart, a true transformation. It happens from the inside out. So, Lord, I ask right now for a move of your spirit that you, the great physician, would do heart surgery on all of us right now. That we may be changed for your glory, that we may be able to honor and represent you in this world the way that you deserve to be honored and represented. God, you are so good. Holy Spirit, would you come and have your way. Let your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen.